Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, November 18th. With these elections, the people stood in the breach and repelled the assault on democracy. They resoundingly rejected violence and insurrection, and in doing so, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, invoking the Star Spangled Banner in her speech yesterday, announcing that she will not run for a minority leader in the next session of Congress. The speech, which many people heard as an instant classic, was filled with seminal, patriotic, and yes, optimistic references like that, things like the Star-Spangled Banner, and in the very next paragraph, the preamble to the United States Constitution. And now we owe to the American people our very best to deliver on their faith, to forever reach for the more perfect union, the glorious horizon that our founders promised. A more perfect union from the preamble to the Constitution. Want another one? How about a reference to the original motto of the United States, as coined by John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin? In their infinite wisdom, our founders gave us their kind, their guidance, e pluribus unum, from many one. They could not have imagined how large our country would become or how different we would be from one another, but they knew we had to be united as one. We the people... One country, one destiny. The motto, E Pluribus Unum, which, by the way, was replaced by In God We Trust in the conservative 1950s. Did you know that? And returning to the preamble for the phrase, We the People, in that clip. Here's one more clip from the speaker's speech before we bring in our guests and open the phones. And this one is not a reference to the government at its founding, but kind of the opposite. It's to the way the House of Representatives has changed. It's been with great pride in my 35 years in the House, I have seen this body grow more reflective of our great nation, our beautiful nation. When I came to the Congress in 1987, there were 12 Democratic women. Now they're over 90, and we want more. (laughs) The new members of our Democratic caucus will be about 75% women, people of color, and LGBTQ. So, folks, there are a few excerpts from Nancy Pelosi's speech yesterday announcing she would keep her seat representing San Francisco, but pass the torch to lead the Democratic conference when the new Congress convenes in January. I thought you might like to hear a few of those kind of extended excerpts, more than the short sound bites you've been getting on the regular newscasts. And we've got two more to play as we go along in this segment. 
It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. And we started the week with Time Magazine national politics correspondent Molly Ball on the Democrats winning the Senate. We'll end it with Molly Ball on the Democrats losing the House. She is extra relevant to this because she wrote the biography of Nancy Pelosi called Pelosi that came out in 2020. And also with us and also from high on the relevance matrix is former Democratic Congressman Steve Israel of Long Island, who was, in a way, Pelosi's chief political strategist between 2011 and 2015 as chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. He has since written two novels, by the way, both set partly on Long Island, called Big Guns, and because he has a sense of humor, The Global War on Morris. Steve and Molly, thanks for coming on on a pretty historic occasion. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you. Great being here. Thank you. Uh, So, Molly... Heck of a speech with all that patriotism and can-do optimism at a pretty pessimistic time in our country. Was it the kind of speech that you would have expected from Nancy Pelosi as she passes the torch? I think so. I mean, really all of the hallmarks of her her speaking style. It was a relatively brief speech, not particularly sentimental. Obviously, a lot of applause from her fellow uh, Democrats in the House caucus who had all gathered in the chamber. I was there watching from the press gallery, and there was a very large contingent of Democrats, a very small contingent of Republicans. But, uh, you know, it was she only spoke for about 10 minutes, and when she was finished, uh, there was just a long line of well-wishers coming up to to hug her and to, and to thank her and, you know, ju- just clear the outpouring of love that she, that she has from her caucus. And I think a bit of relief, too, because uh, she'd kept everyone in so much suspense about this decision, including potentially herself, right? There was a lot of reporting oh. that she herself uh, didn't know exactly what she was going to do. Uh, but with the House passing into Republican hands, uh, this uh, and, and her having made this decision that she would uh, sort of ease out, right, leave leadership but not leave the House for now. Uh, and it really paves the way for a whole new era in Congress on the Democratic side. Steve Israel, same question. Was it the kind of speech and with all those references to the founding documents and the founding individuals kind of speech that you would have expected from Nancy Pelosi as she passes the torch. Absolutely. It was a, a blend of uh, that can-do, must-do attitude of Nancy Pelosi and her grasp of history. And I, I want to share with you a kind of a behind-the-scenes view of, of Pelosi's grasp of history and guiding every decision that she and the caucus made. When we would meet with her in her conference room, and I was in the leadership for six years, there was only one thing that she displayed on her walls, and that was a portrait of former Congressman Abraham Lincoln, this beautiful commanding portrait uh, of Lincoln on the floor of the House. And it was uh, it would uh, was hanging just above her seat at the head of the table. And no matter what issue we were grasping uh, or grappling with, no matter what strategic decisions we were making, she would always end the conversation by pointing to that portrait and saying, remember what Lincoln said, public sentiment is everything. And so she was guided by history, but she also understood fundamental strategy and tactics in connecting with the public to achieve her legislative goals. Public opinion is everything? I wouldn't think Public sentiment is everything, is what Lincoln said. Right. Why that, of all things? Because sometimes public sentiment can be racist. Sometimes public sentiment can be wrong. Uh, So why public sentiment? Oh, it's a great question. Her view was you have to educate the public. And I'll give you another example. Uh, I had a hard time voting on on something uh, uh, that was very difficult in my district. 
Uh, and uh, I, I saw her on the floor and I said, uh, Madam Leader, uh, this is going to be rough for me. I don't know if I'm going to make it through the next election if I take this vote. This is the Bush tax cuts. And I represented Long Island. Long Island loves tax cuts. And I said, I don't think I can make it through my next election. She looked at me and she said, well, your job is to just go out and educate your constituents about why you need to vote the way you're going to vote. And that was what she meant by public sentiment is everything. You have to educate people and bring them along. Interesting. Bali, she said in the first clip we played, with these elections, the people stood in the breach and repelled the assault on democracy. They resoundingly rejected violence and insurrection, and in so doing, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. And it definitely gave me chills hearing it put that way. And it's true, as we've been talking about on the show all week, that all those Republican candidates for governor and secretary of state who wanted to mess with the true outcome of elections lost, and the Dems held the Senate, but Pelosi's Democrats also lost the majority in the House. Why did we get this mixed result? Uh, oh, well, I thought you were going to ask me why she was acting as if it was a victory, which, uh, you know, well, I go think ahead. for a lot of Go ahead Democrats, and answer that question. That's a better of... question. So go ahead and answer <laughs> your question. Well, I'll no, I'll answer them both. Um, I'm not going to do the politician thing here where I answer the question I wish you would have asked me. But, uh, <laughs> but, but look, I think for a lot of Democrats, it did, did feel like a sort of moral victory that they held the Republicans to such a narrow uh, takeover of the House. And there's a lot of questions ahead, as, as, as we've discussed, uh, for the Republicans and for uh, Kevin McCarthy and whether he can be speaker. And, and uh, it was very interesting because, you know, I, I spoke with uh, Speaker Pelosi immediately after that that floor speech, uh, had, had, had a conversation with her. And she did uh, she, she did see this election as a sort of victory, despite Democrats having lost the House. Uh, and she and in exactly the terms that she spoke about in her speech, she felt that the American public had really delivered a verdict on uh, what she viewed as as, as the indecency uh, and, and just unacceptable attitudes of the Republican Party. And and one of the things that she said was that you know she had said before the election that her thinking about this decision was influenced by that horrendous, brutal attack uh, on her husband in their home in San Francisco, from which mm -hmm. he still recovering uh and 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 when i spoke to her about that she said that um you know some people took that the wrong way took that to mean that 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 she was uh more uh inclined to to, to go home and and not spend so much time uh, in congress or in dc it was just the opposite she said she said she couldn't give them that satisfaction hmm. of feeling like they'd driven her out so uh you know she believed that the american people had delivered a verdict potentially uh about that as well that uh she she said that she's she's seen some information that uh the way republicans responded to the attack on paul pelosi and 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 the the party's failure to sort of come together and denounce political violence uh, was itself a part of that calculation that voters made in the election of looking at the Republicans and saying we just don't want to uh, give you this mandate despite uh, all of the reasons that we may be upset with the Democrats so uh, so 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 she looks at this election uh, where the Democrats did lose the house but and and still sees I think a lot of reason. Uh, for hope and optimism and a way forward. Would it be reading too much into, wouldn't go back to San Francisco to give them the satisfaction, which you just said, to think that she saw it on one level as all these Republican men wanting to force the most powerful woman in the history of the country to go home and take care of her man? Oh, 
I don't know if she'd put it exactly that way. Uh, I I think uh, it was more just feeling like you know this 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 crazed lunatic who attacked her so personally uh, couldn't couldn't get the satisfaction of of having uh, you know forced that decision on her. But she's always made decisions on her own terms, and I think there's also a political calculus here. I'd, I'd love to hear uh, Congressman Israel's thoughts on this. But you know, with such a narrow uh, minority, such a narrow margin in the House. The Democrats need all the votes they can get. Uh, and uh, for her to stay there, for Steny Hoyer to stay there, for Jim Hoyer, to st- uh, for Jim Clyburn uh, to stay there, uh, all three of them giving up their leadership uh, slots, but staying in Congress, that also adds to the Democrats' vote count. So I think that's probably also something she was thinking about. Steve, want to pick it up on the strategy yeah. as Molly, Molly set you up for? Molly is exactly right. Um, Look, prevalent in her thinking uh, about this succession, which, by the way, uh, began in 2012, I can tell you, prevalent in her thinking was, how do I do this in a way that can assure a smooth transition to the new leadership? And how do I do this in a way that preserves our majority during the lame duck? There are some difficult Uh, decisions to be made, some pretty tough votes that will have to be taken between now and the Republican majority on January 3rd. And so those two concerns uh, were absolutely, were weighing very heavily on her. She, uh, she's still the speaker. She will be speaker until the Democrats have their uh, leadership elections. During that time, she can preside over a smooth transition, presumably to Hakeem Jeffries. During that time, she can make sure that those who may not get what they wanted uh, get something else. Uh, Pelosi is a genius at uh, healing disappointments and smoothing ruffled feathers. Only she can do that. She'll be in a position to do that. Uh, She'll be able to help fill the vacuum that she will leave in fundraising. Uh, so she'll be she'll have the time she needs to reach out to donors, introduce them to the new leadership and make sure that the Democrats don't fall off a cliff with respect to fundraising mm-hmm. revenues, which they're going to need. They're going to need those resources to take back the majority. And finally, on those very difficult votes that are coming on some of the contentious issues, she will still be there making sure that the Democrats have 218 votes. Molly, in your biography called Pelosi. You tell a story of Nancy as a girl in 1957, getting to hear John F. Kennedy in person, Kennedy then a senator, not yet president. And you write, Kennedy's appeal was lofty and ideological, rooted in patriotism and faith. And you write, it would become the model for Nancy's evolving political orientation, Catholic social justice with a hint of noblesse oblige. Can you say more about the line from JFK to Nancy Pelosi? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she would be the first to tell you that he was her political role model. Uh, She attended his inauguration, uh, and her father uh, was a supporter. Uh, But, you know, she really represents and and has been a part of the change in the Democratic Party over the decades, right? Uh, uh, she She came from a political family in Baltimore that was very much the sort of early 20th century, white ethnic, urban machine, democratic politics. That was the sort of favor trading and, and patronage politics that her father and uh, uh, practiced. Uh, but then, you know, the, the the example of JFK was much more ideological, much more idealistic. And and then, you know, she, she got married and followed her, her husband, Paul Pelosi, to his hometown of San Francisco, where she really came to, to represent and epitomize 
what's often derisively called the San Francisco liberal, right? Mm -hmm. Someone who who cared a lot about uh, social justice, about gay rights, about international human rights, about the environment. Those have been some of uh, the big causes that she has championed uh, in the House. And those are really much more the ideology of the modern Democratic Party. So not only does she sort of symbolize that transition, I think she's been a driver of it. I mean, one of the things that uh, a lot of people don't know about Nancy Pelosi is that she's really the reason that the Democrats held their convention in San Francisco in 1984. At the time, she was a volunteer and party chair, and she uh, chaired that convention and helped bring it to San Francisco. And that it, it, it was at that convention uh, that the derisive term San Francisco liberal was coined. So huh. she still gets called that name, but she really played a part in it even being coined. And you write in your book, when JFK became president, Nancy attended his inauguration. Ask not what your country can do for you, Kennedy famously declared. Ask what you can do for your country. But it was the next line, far less famous, you write, that moved her most deeply. My fellow citizens of the world, he said, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. Wow. So did you hear echoes from that speech by Kennedy 61 years ago in the one we heard from Pelosi yesterday? Yeah, I mean, she quotes that line all the time to this day. And, you know, people may remember the controversy that she caused over the summer by going to Taiwan. Uh, but the China issue is one that she's been active on for decades. And it really does come from a position of uh, concern for, for universal human rights. I mean, so, so whether you look at, you know, going back to the 1980s when she stood up for gay rights at a time when that was a much less popular cause, even in San Francisco, and she would not back down from her belief that, uh, as she said at the time, you know, uh, all, all, uh, all people gay or straight are, are children of God, uh, going all the way forward into the present day uh, through, through Tiananmen Square to her concern for the people of, of, of Hong Kong and, and others uh, suffering uh, under the repressive Chinese regime, uh, she has really maintained that orientation uh, toward human rights of all kinds. And I think she would tell you that it comes from her faith, from her her, her deep Catholic faith. And it also comes from uh, that inspiration from, from JFK and others, uh, that, that uh, just sort of ideological lodestar that she's always held. And so from that lofty idealism back down to the ground of uh, electoral politics, so Steve, back to you as a former Democratic congressman from Long Island, which now has four Republicans and no Democrats representing it in co Congress. And don't just blame redistricting, because I understand the new lines in the 4th District in Nassau County, the one that Democrat Kathleen Rice used to represent, define an area that Joe Biden won by 15 points. But the Republican, Anthony D'Esposito, won over the Democrat for Congress. So what's happening on Long Island, your stomping grounds, as you see it? Yeah, so people have called this a sea change. I, I, I really do think it was a perfect storm. Uh, partially, it was redistricting. The third congressional district, for example, my former district, um, was supposed to be a slam dunk for Democrats uh, in the in the second map. And that just so people have slammed. the context, that's the Tom Swasey district. The Tom Swasey district, uh, yes. Northeast Queens and a lot of the North Shore of Long Island. Yeah, so on the first redistricting map, which was overly aggressive and quite honestly backfired, that district went from the North Shore of Nassau County and Northeast Queens and some of Suffolk County all the way into Rockland County. I mean, it spanned bridges. It spanned the Long Island Sound. It almost spanned time zones. Uh, and uh, the, the New York courts, the Court of Appeal said this will not stand. And so they did 
the original maps, I think, would have netted Democrats about three seats. It ended up netting Republicans three or four seats. But uh, you can't just blame redistricting. There were other issues. One of them was Long Island is Lee Zeldin's territory. He has been in this media market for longer than Kathy Hochul has been in this media market. He's a bit of a hometown hero. And so I'm not surprised that he overperformed against Hochul. Uh, and uh, that had a very positive down ballot effect for the four Republicans running for Congress. And then finally, there was the crime issue. Long Island is a uh, th that that issue was very resonant on Long Island when people hear things like defund the police and cashless bail, notwithstanding whatever policy ideals may be behind those issues, it does rankle Long Island voters. But Brian, here's the thing. Final point on this. Long Island is defiantly centrist when they believe that a political party has gone too far in one direction. Uh, they have kind of this Pavlovian response to nudge it back to the center. If the four Republican, new Republican members of the House from Long Island uh, align themselves with the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, and uh, shut down the government and vote ideologically to the right, there will be a course correction uh, in 2024. Uh, if they decide that they want to be more, they can't be Marjorie Taylor Greene. They have to govern like Peter King, the former Republican congressman from Long Island, who really did govern from the center. That's the model of success on Long Island. If anybody had a doubt about Nancy Pelosi as somebody who could take charge in a crisis, that video that emerged that I think was shot by her daughter, who's a filmmaker, of her on the phone with, was it the Secret Service or the Capitol Police? And Chuck Schumer, the majority leader of the Senate, is standing there right with her. But he's just going, uh-huh, uh-huh, me too. Yeah, she's right. you know. <laughs> and she's taking charge and saying, we need this and we need that and we need it now and we're afraid for our lives. So that was some display by Nancy Pelosi that I think will be unforgettable to history. Absolutely. And it really showcased a lot of, of the qualities that have made her so successful as a congressional leader, right? That that orientation toward action, uh, what one of her mentors, uh, who I quote in my book, uh, called being operational, right? She's always focused on results and focused on what she can do in the moment uh, to advance toward those results. She does not spend a lot of time dithering uh, potentially to a fault, right? She makes decisions very quickly. She's very decisive. She knows where she stands. And then she takes action. So while others may be, you know, twiddling their thumbs or, or hemming and hawing, she's going to be the one who's making the phone call. And by the way, uh, chewing on a Slim Jim the whole time. And <laughs> she's not uh, not someone who, who spends a lot of time worrying about her diet, often has chocolate ice cream for breakfast. And uh, after, uh, after I spoke with her yesterday, after her floor speech, she was going off to have her traditional lunch of a hot dog. In an earlier generation, it would have been a cigar. For Nancy Pelosi in 2021, it was a Slim Jim. As we participate in a hallmark of our republic, the peaceful, orderly transition from one Congress to the next, let us consider the words of, again, President Lincoln, spoken during one of America's darkest hours. He called upon us to come together, to swell the chorus of the Union, when once again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. That, again, is the task at hand. More from Nancy Pelosi's speech yesterday, saying she won't run for minority leader in the new Congress, but will stay as a member of Congress. Steve Israel, are you surprised that Pelosi is staying in Congress if she's leaving the leadership and not resigning altogether? Some people thought she would. 
No, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, and this goes back to something I, I said earlier. She began calculating and considering and contemplating her departure from Congress in 2012. I would sit with her uh, and then uh, Maryland Congressman Chris Van Hollen, now a senator, and she would say to us, look, I've got nine grandchildren at home. I don't need to stay. Let's talk about a succession. And and, and she had, as, as Molly knows, because she writes about this in her book, uh, she had criteria for how she would actually leave Capitol Hill. Number one, was the caucus going to be well served by her successor? So she wanted to make sure that the caucus would, it's a very disparate, diverse caucus, somebody who could succeed her and unify the caucus. Number two, somebody with the skills to negotiate legislation, negotiate not just with the Republicans in the House, but with Democrats in the Senate and the White House. Number three, somebody who had uh, a, a capacity to raise the funds that Democrats would need to compete with Republicans. In every single cycle uh, that I served with her uh, in leadership, uh, she was contemplating who that would be. And quite bluntly, uh, you know, she at one point said Chris, to Chris Van Hollen, you should do it. And Chris decided to run for uh, the Senate. And she said to me at a certain point, you should do it. And I made other decisions with my life. The reason that she's not leaving Capitol Hill entirely and staying where she is is because she wants to make sure that those criteria are fulfilled. She may be a backbencher, but she's still going to sit in the front row. And she has a unique ability to ensure that all of those criteria uh, are fulfilled. She can usher in the new uh, leadership. She can make sure that some who wanted to compete for leadership and now won't uh, are well served, taken care of. She can negotiate uh, with the, the new Speaker of the House on things, but you know, banal things like committee ratios have to be decided. She can work with Hakeem Jeffries to negotiate those issues. So she will be a critical presence uh, on Capitol Hill. And by the way, uh, from a more parochial perspective uh, that uh, Una may appreciate, she will also have a lot to say about who succeeds her in that district in San mm. Francisco. And she can do that from her seat in the House of Representatives. Steve, last question for you. You've been in the minority as a Democrat in Congress. Now the Democrats are headed for minority status again in the House. How do you play defense in that role? And can they also play offense on policy without the majority of votes? Well, the the, the margin that Kevin McCarthy will have uh, will be very narrow. About the margin that Nancy Pelosi has right now at the end of the day, probably about 213 to 222, maybe 214 to 221. So the Republican margin uh, leaves very little room for error. And there is going to be fundamental instability on the Republican side. Kevin McCarthy is going to need to thread a needle that is always aimed at his back uh, between the Freedom Caucus, who he will depend on for his uh, speakership and the moderates, uh, moderate Republicans, he will depend on for his speakership. Uh, and so you've got to take advantage of that instability. There there are tools that the minority has uh, in order to press uh, their messaging. Uh, and uh, nobody uh, has been able to use those tools and figure out which ones to pull out of the toolbox more effectively uh, than Nancy Pelosi, which is another reason that I believe she's decided to remain in the House for a while longer uh, so that she can help sharpen and shape those strategies vis-a-vis -vis the Republican, the new Republican majority. And Molly Ball, last question for you. The next Democratic leadership we're told will likely be three particular younger members, Hakeem Jeffries from New York, Peter Aguilar, Peter Aguilar from California, Kathleen Clark from Massachusetts, because 
as you both have been saying, not just Pelosi, but the numbers two and three leaders, Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn, also in their 80s, are also stepping down. Do you think stepping away together is intended to send a message to President Biden at all for 2024? Uh, Not on their part. I mean, I think these three... uh, uh, will uh, have have certainly made the argument against ageism over and over again and have been strong supporters uh, of President Biden. Uh, uh, Congressman Clyburn, the whip, uh, famously endorsed Biden and, and probably is the reason that he's president and continues to be a close advisor to him. It's also the case that the three of them don't necessarily move in lockstep. They each have independent political organizations and uh, Pelosi and Hoyer in particular have been sort of frenemies, uh, believe it or not, since 1963 when they worked for the same Democratic senator from Maryland uh, long before either of them uh, had any kind of political career. So, uh, you know, there's there's a historically been a lot of tension between those two camps, as I know uh, Congressman uh, Israel could attest. Uh, and so they didn't make that decision jointly. If anything, uh, Pelosi world was sort of annoyed uh, that she was the one who had to make the first move. Uh, she would have liked to see a little bit uh, more deference. Uh, but in the broader Democratic Party, is there a lot of angst uh, about uh, the president's age, just as there was about the age of the congressional leadership? Absolutely. And so now that you have a, a sort of a fresh face on the congressional leadership, in the House, is that going to make a lot of Democrats think about, uh, is that something that we need on the top of the ticket for 2024? I can tell you it's it's not something that they a lot of them talk about publicly, but it's certainly something that a lot of Democrats are thinking about. We thank Molly Ball, who wrote the biography of Nancy Pelosi called Pelosi and his Time Magazine national political correspondent, and Steve Israel, who is director of the Institute of Politics and Global Affairs at Cornell University and was a congressman from Long Island and uh, from 2011 to 2015 chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee under Nancy Pelosi. We thank you two very, very much, but we give Nancy Pelosi the last word, fittingly, in this segment. A new day is dawning on the horizon, and I look forward, always forward, to the unfolding story of our nation, a story of light and love, of patriotism and progress, of many becoming one, and always an unfinished mission to make the dreams of today the reality of tomorrow. Thank you all. May God bless you and your families, and may God bless, continue to bless our veterans and the United States of America. Thank you all so much. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Have a great weekend. Talk to you Monday.